Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning, and we thank you for being here. And I just want to echo, as Ted said earlier, I want to say just how grateful I am that we were able to get uh, all of this turned over and moved uh, from one week to the next and to have the seats installed. And I'm grateful for uh, all those who were helping in getting that done. I'm grateful to our building committee, uh, all those who helped make this possible um, to be able to increase our seating capacity. Uh, in this place. As many of you know, we, if you've been worshiping with us and being regular in your attendance here, you know that we have been faced with a couple of pinch points, and those pinch points have been our parking and our ability to seat. And um, uh, because of your uh, generosity, but also because of God's blessings, we have been able to address both of those issues. And we've got a new parking lot that's out there now, and we've got new seats that are in here, and we are grateful. Uh, for that because we know that uh, that allows us to continue ministering uh, to this community and to be able to faithfully proclaim the good news of Christ's salvation and that is our entire goal and it is to that goal that we want to turn our attention now in our services so if you've got your Bibles with you and I certainly hope that you do would you please take them and turn with me once again to the gospel of Mark chapter 10 Mark chapter 10 if you've been with us you know that over the past few weeks we've been kind of centering here in chapter 10 and we've actually come across two scenes that have followed back to back to one another. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, cover these two scenes and, and, and bring them together just as we read them in Mark. And the first scene involved the point where Jesus was addressing his disciples. In fact, he was rebuking his disciples because they were in the, uh, the, the position of, of forbidding parents from bringing their little children, their babies to Jesus for him to be able to bless them. And if you'll recall, Jesus, Jesus put a stop to that. And, and he makes a very important statement back in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Effectively, what he says is that the kingdom of God belongs to and will only be possessed by those who come to him as little children. In other words, possession of the kingdom, or we might even say it this way, salvation or eternal life, well, that is only available to those who come to Christ as little children do, who come to him weak and helpless and empty-handed and dependent upon God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Now, it was on the heels of that scene that, that Mark tells us about that then we are introduced to the man that we talked about and learned about last week, a man who we often refer to as the rich young ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he was rich, but we learn from Matthew that, that he was young, and then we learn from Luke that he was a ruler. And so we've come to refer to him, quite frankly, as the rich young ruler. And, and what we learn is that he came anxiously to Jesus in order for, to, to learn what he could do to inherit eternal life. We also learn that this rich young ruler was confident in his own goodness and in his own obedience to the law. Nevertheless, he, even in his own obedience and his own goodness, he recognized that, that there was something else that he probably needed. He wanted to be able to do something to pad his spiritual resume so that, so that he could cause God to have no reason, in fact, force God's hand in order to, to make God allow him into his eternal kingdom. Immediately what we recognize is that unlike the little children and the babies that were in the previous passage, this man does not come to Christ either weak. He doesn't come to him helpless or empty-handed or dependent. In fact, though he does come to Jesus, 
who was the right person, and though he is inquiring about the right subject, eternal life, we recognize that this man is nevertheless relying on his own strength. He's, he's relying on his own goodness. He's relying on his own righteousness, his own works. And Jesus pinpoints this young man's fixation on himself, and, and he exposes it by telling the man that if he ever really truly wants to inherit eternal life, he, he, he just lacks one thing. He says, go and sell everything you've got. Liquidate all of your possessions and give your proceeds to the poor and to the needy. And then, having, having gotten rid of all of that, come and follow me and be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus says is if you want to, if you want to truly inherit eternal life, you've got to divest yourself. You've got to divest yourself of everything that you've been grabbing onto and holding onto, everything that's given you our, your identity. You've got to divest yourself of that, and then you need to invest into the kingdom. And you do that, he says, by, by giving of your proceeds to the poor and to the needy, and then by coming and being my disciple. Now, faced with that demand, we read that the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, and, and significantly, Mark tells us that he walked away sad. In fact, as I studied the commentaries on this passage, the overwhelming consensus is that this is the only example of any person who ever encountered Jesus in the Gospels and then walked away from him worse off than how he came. The reason that the man was so sorrowful, the reason he was so discouraged, was because, as Mark states, he was a man of great possessions. In other words, he was, he was unwilling to part with his wealth and his prosperity. In his mind, walking away from his possessions and his position in life was too high of a cost to pay for eternal life. Consequently, Jesus had identified what truly mattered most to this man, and what that was was his earthly wealth. And it was more valuable to him than eternal life. Now, as I mentioned last week, the rich young ruler made the decision to walk away from Jesus. However, what he didn't realize was that in walking away from Jesus, he was actually walking away from the ultimate rich, young ruler. You see, comparatively speaking, Jesus was a young man. He was in his early 30s at this point. But even more significantly, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as that, he is the ruler of everything. The Bible describes him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom is forever. Not only that, but... Even though as Jesus walked the face of the earth, he had no home of his own, no place to lay his head, nothing, nothing of physical possessions that would have alerted them to here, we recognize from what Scripture teaches that he is, the, he is the ruler of all, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a, which is a grand way of saying that, that that which Jesus possesses is far greater than anything that any rich person here on this world will ever possess. His riches were unfathomable, and his rule is absolute. It makes one wonder, at least for me, that if this man that we refer to in the Gospels as the rich young ruler had known that Jesus was the true and ultimate rich young ruler, would he have ever walked away from him? And yet, sadly, people still do. They walk away from the one who has everything to give them. 
And that actually leads us to where we find ourselves focusing our attention this morning. You see, as the man disappears from the view of Jesus and from the disciples, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson about riches and about redemption and about rewards. And so that sets the stage for our study this morning. I want to pick up reading for you there in verse 23. Right after the rich young ruler has departed Jesus and left his presence, that we read this. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us here to this place this day. And just as Pastor Ted has prayed earlier, we recognize that there are many who cannot be here today because of sickness. Lord, the, the flu bug has really bit our congregation in this community. And it's not just here. It's all across our, our United States. And so, Father, I pray for those who are sick, particularly those of our church family who cannot be here today, who would want to be, those who are in hospitals. God, we know of those. We pray for them. We pray that you might strengthen them, that you might bring healing to their bodies, that you might encourage their hearts and their families. And Lord, that they might truly be able to be up and be about doing the things that you would have them to do. We thank you that we are able to be here and we pray that you would help us to focus our attention on your word this morning and to block out all the other distractions that may be in our lives so that we may be able to focus on that which you would seek to reveal to us. Bring about your conviction, let your conviction issue forth in repentance and let that repentance then issue forth in reconciliation with you and with others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we pick up this narrative here in verse 23 and, and, and it's kind of a sad picture because the man has just walked away from Jesus and, and Mark tells us that he is sad. But, but you kind of get the impression that he's not the only one that's sad. You kind of get the impression that the disciples are probably sad as well. I mean, after all, from their perspective, this man had it all. I mean, he had power, he had prestige, he had possessions, he had wealth. He really had about everything that the other disciples didn't have. This was a blue chip prospect. We might even say it in football terms, he was a five-star recruit. He was, the, he was the non, you can't miss with this guy. He's the kind of guy, most organizations, even churches, would be tripping all over themselves to welcome in and to put in positions of leadership. The disciples likely saw that man, 
his, his departure as a missed opportunity. But Jesus, on the other hand, saw it as a perfect opportunity to teach some lessons, some important lessons to his disciples. And the first one that he taught, it's the first point that I've given to you on your outline this morning. The first point that Jesus teaches them is this. Riches can make you spiritually poor. Riches can make you spiritually poor. I want you to notice what Jesus says again there in verse 23. He says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, make no mistake about it. That was a bombshell statement. And it, it's obvious that it was because it completely astonished his disciples. They are just awestruck and slack-jawed by what Jesus has said. Why was that the case? Well, the disciples had bought into what was a very common belief in that day, and it's still a common belief in our day. And that is that wealth and prosperity were sure signs of God's blessings. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say in Proverbs 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. The Bible also says in Proverbs 8, verses 20 and 21, the Lord says, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. We also have the Old Testament examples of, of folks like Abraham, Job, David, and, and let's not forget Solomon who would have been considered the richest man to have ever lived, especially in his time and even for centuries after him. And does that not point us to the fact that God truly does pour out his blessings upon us in material ways? Sure it does. But we must also remember that the scriptures warn us that wealth and riches are not the end all to be all. They are not the things that should dominate our thoughts and our desires. In fact, the Bible warns us about the dangers of wealth and riches. We also read this in Psalm 62, verse 10. It says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 says, whoever trusts in riches will fall. You see, what the scriptures teach us and what Jesus says explicitly here to his disciples is that wealth and riches have the ability to become a real and present danger to a person's spiritual health. Riches have the distinct ability to trip a person up and to ensnare them in a trap. William Lane, in his commentary on this passage, describes just how dangerous riches and wealth can be. He writes that the peculiar danger confronting the rich is that it lies in the false sense of security which wealth creates and in the temptation to trust in material resources and personal power when what is demanded by the law and the gospel is wholehearted reliance upon God. As Randy Alcorn has written, he says material wealth can begin as God's blessing, but when we treat it as a substitute for God, it becomes a curse. In other words, the danger of material riches is that they can become your main focus and your source of hope rather than God, thereby making you spiritually poor. Job recognized this. You remember Job was a man of great possessions. And then, of course, 
He lost all of that, and in the process of that, he's querying God. He's trying to think, what had I do? What could have happened that would have caused this to take place? And in his querying of God and remembering of things of himself, he said these very important words in Job 31, verses 24 and following. He says, if I have made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth, because it was great, or because my hand has gained much, he says, then this would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. The Apostle Paul saw fit to warn concerning wealth. He, he issues this, this statement to, to Timothy and, and how Timothy was to, to instruct the people that he was given charge over. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, the Bible is replete with warnings concerning the danger that wealth and riches pose and the trap that is laid by them. When the focus of our lives moves away from honoring God and, and trusting in Him alone in order that we might be able to pursue more wealth and trusting in that wealth to be that which, is, which provides us security and, and the possessions and riches to be those things that, that give us our identity and our value, then we will have placed our confidence in the wrong thing. We will have placed our trust in something other than God. We will have, just as the rich young ruler did, engaged in idolatry. And therefore, that is why Jesus says that your riches can become an obstacle to you entering the kingdom of God. Consequently, as Kent Hughes writes, he says, there is a proper Christian fear of being rich. He says, wealth becomes a disadvantage when an earnest man or woman becomes so attached to it that he or she forgets what is infinitely more important. And an unhealthy and unholy attachment to wealth and riches goes directly against what we read in the Old Testament there with the very first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it goes directly against the warning that is given in Isaiah 42, verse 8, where the God says, I am the Lord, and that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. So Jesus' lection, his lesson here on riches is simply that they have the distinct danger of making us spiritually poor. They do that by becoming an obstacle to us trap for us. Now, having stated that warning in verse 23, he essentially repeats himself in verse 24. And then the disciples just try to understand that in their minds. And then to really hammer the point home, what Jesus does is he gives us a word picture of just how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 25 that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the impossibility of that and that mental image is something that even a child can understand. You just consider that, that a camel would have been the largest 
land animal in Palestine. It would have been like what we might consider an elephant or something along those lines. But in Palestine, the largest land animal was a camel. And so Jesus uses that intentionally and pulls out that largest land animal. And then he holds up the smallest opening that one can imagine. And that is the, the, the eye of a sower's needle. And he says it would be easier for that very large land animal to get through that eye of that needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, along the way, of course, centuries, people have tried to soften this because obviously that's, that's too hard. That, that that's obviously just pushes that out. So, so really, what they say is what Jesus meant was is that there was a gate in the walls of Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle Gate. And, and that gate was very small and very narrow and that, that a camel really could get through that Eye of the Needle Gate if it took everything off of its pack and got down on its knees and crawled through. And so really, that's what Jesus was saying. The only problem with that is, is there's no archaeological evidence to prove that there was ever a gate that existed like that, particularly in Jesus' day. So we, we have to turn from that. Others have said, well, really, the word camel, that word is translated from a word in, in, in Aramaic that is very similar to the word that we could translate cable. And a cable is like a rope. And so really Jesus was just talking about how difficult it would be to get a rope through the eye of a needle. And I would say that would still be very difficult, if, you know, nigh on impossible. But, but it's funny that all three gospel writers translate it and, and say the word camel. When we get to parts of Scripture like this, I think the best thing for us to do is to allow Scripture to speak for itself, not to try to reinterpret it or, or soften it, but allow it to do exactly what Jesus wanted it to do, and that is to confront us with the impossibility of the fact that a rich person who is trusting in their riches and, and has put all of their efforts into that as to be that which will make them acceptable for God, Jesus says there's an impossibility. It cannot happen. And that's exactly the way that the disciples understood it. Because you see, they recognize that they say in verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished by what Jesus has said. And they ask then, who can be saved? If this guy, if this rich man who's just walked away from Jesus, if he can't be saved, then who of us can? And Jesus says, ah, now you're starting to get it. In fact, this leads Jesus to say in verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Therefore, the next point on your outline this morning that Jesus teaches his disciples is this. Apart from the grace and mercy of God, redemption would remain an impossibility for everybody. None of us None of us would ever be able to stand before God redeemed were it not for the grace and the mercy of God. You notice how Jesus just strips away everything? He, he strips away everything that we want to grab onto and, and offer up as something that makes us valuable and worthy. He strips it all away so that the only place we can turn is to Him. Sometimes I think about it this way. You know, we, we talk about it here. The kingdom of God is so far removed, it's so high and lofty that, that what, what Christ tells us is that 
No amount of earthly wealth and no amount of earthly stock in those things will ever do us any good. But I want you to also note the other side of it because I think it's, it's important that we recognize this too. You see, a person can't give away enough of their stuff. A person can't divest themselves of enough of their stuff, take a vow of poverty and, and hope that that will also earn them entrance into heaven. See, when, when, when Jesus says with man it's impossible, he means for the rich person or the poor person. There's not a one of us who have the ability to do anything to earn or to make ourselves worthy of being saved. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But it's not impossible with God. You see, this passage, Jesus doesn't necessarily elaborate on how redemption takes place, but the scriptures certainly teach us that elsewhere. See, if you can't earn heaven by wealth or by good works, if you can't get rid of enough stuff to make you worthy to get into heaven, then, then the only way that God can do that is if he operates entirely apart from us and he operates according to his own good pleasure. In other words, our only hope is if God is both gracious and merciful to us. And brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that focusing on God's grace and mercy is the key to allowing us to turn loose of everything else that we are grabbing onto in our lives. I had a conversation with a young man this week and I was able to sit there and we were able to talk about the gospel and we were able to talk about the good things that, that God does. And, and, and we got to the discussion of what grace and mercy mean. And I've discussed this with you before, but it bears repeating this morning that if we truly begin to understand what grace and mercy, what they are, it will go a long way toward helping us turn loose of anything else in our lives that we value. Grace. Grace is what God gives us that we do not deserve. Grace is a gift. When we talk about a gift, it means that God has given us something that we have not earned. We did not do anything to merit it. We did not, we did not work for it. If it were a wage, it would be something that we were given because of something that we had worked for. But that's not what grace is. Grace is a free gift of God's salvation and His love. So we stand as open hands, not bringing something to trade for it. We are just the receiver of grace. Mercy, mercy is the other side. Mercy is in that God withholds from us what we do deserve. You see, every one of us in this room deserves something. The Bible tells us that we have been storing up for ourselves wrath against the day of wrath when God will judge us. That's Romans 2 verse 5. And the Bible also tells us in Romans that because of our sin, the wages of that sin is death. That's what every single one of us deserves. We've earned that. We've worked for it and earned it. But God, in His mercy, withholds that from us. And He actually takes His wrath and pours it out on His own Son on Calvary's cross. He punishes Jesus in our place so that we might be free from the penalty of our own sin. Now, when you truly begin to understand grace and mercy and that you have never done anything to deserve God's gift, but yet He gives it to you, but everything you have done deserves God's punishment, but He withholds it from you, then, brothers and sisters, that starts making you go, I have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Because that's where it all comes to. So our redemption 
depends upon God's act of kindness toward us. And it necessitates us turning loose of everything else and placing our complete faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's exactly what the rich young ruler would not do. So he sorrowfully fades from the view. And as a result, Jesus teaches these two main lessons. That is, riches can make you spiritually poor. And then he follows that up with this. Apart from the grace and mercy of God, redemption would remain an impossibility for everyone. And many of you are probably hoping it would all stop right there and we could just close the book and go home. But Peter, Peter, he keeps the scene going. Peter steps up and says, well, see, Lord, we have left all and followed you. Now that... The question comes to mind is, why did Peter feel the need to say that right here? Some have suggested that Peter was trying to encourage the Lord. You see, that they suggest that Jesus was also sad. It wasn't just the rich young ruler that was sad, and it wasn't just the disciples who were sad. It was Jesus who was sad. And so, and so the disciples, particularly Peter, steps up and says, Well, cheer up, Jesus. You've still got us. I know he got away and he walked away, but you've still got me and you've still got Andrew and James and John and Levi and all the rest of us. We're still here. Others have noted that this was more of a self-congratulatory ring. He was, he was kind of patting himself on the back. He and his other disciples, you know, he saw the departure of the rich young ruler as an opportunity to, you know, push forward and establish the fact that, that he and his fellow disciples had truly left things to come and follow Jesus. Still others propose, and I'm kind of along these lines. I believe that, that Peter's statement was actually a question. It was a statement that was intended to get Jesus to respond, which is exactly what Jesus did. And so in Peter's mind, he's going, well, listen, you've just said that the only way that we'll ever receive anything is if we turn and loose and walk away from everything and follow you. Well, we've done that. So we want to know, Jesus, what's in it for us? We want to know what's in it for us. If a person gives everything up to follow you so that he can have eternal life, well, listen, we've done that, so what's our reward? Peter's statement then leads Jesus to issue forth the last lesson that we find in this passage, and it's the last point on your outline, and it's this. What he tells us is that any sacrifices made to follow Christ will pale in comparison to the rewards of eternal life. Any sacrifices made to follow Christ will pale in comparison to the rewards of eternal life. I just want to read Jesus' words for you one more time. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land and persecutions Throws that in there. But he says, and then the age to come, eternal life. And then he finishes this, many, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is not an exhaustive list, but I want you to know this is an all-encompassing list. Notice that Jesus starts with possessions, houses, and he ends with possessions, lands. So he talks about there are those who will walk away from houses and lands, money, possessions. But then in the middle, he talks about relationships, some of the most important relationships, the relationships that, from which we derive our identity. He talks about those family relationships, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, wife, children. 
He's not saying that those will be completely lost, but what he is saying is that if our identity and if everything we're holding on to is there, then we have to turn loose of even that to be able to follow him. But then notice what Jesus says. If those things are given up, those people who give them up will not be left empty-handed. In fact, he says such a one will receive a hundred more, hundredfold more in return. He tells Peter, look, you can't give anything up in this life and me not notice. And what you leave, I will replace. And the gains that you realize will, be, will far exceed anything that you've ever sacrificed for me. I, I can't help but recall two parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. He talks about this, this treasure that was buried in a field and a man was walking through the field and he tripped over this treasure and he sees it and he looks at it and he determines how, how valuable this treasure was. And then Jesus says, for joy, for joy he went and sold everything he had, liquidated it all that he might buy that field because in buying that field he was going to gain the treasure that was in that field. What this parable taught was that the joy of, of getting rid of everything else in order that you might gain that biggest treasure? What Jesus is saying is that there is a treasure that is worth abandoning everything else for. He follows that parable up with the parable of the pearl of great price. There was a man who was bought and sold and dealt in pearls and in, in, in expensive uh, jewelry and, and, and precious stones. And this man... He's on a search and he finds this pearl that is so beautiful and so full of luster and so valuable that he goes and he sells everything else that he owns that he might be able to come back and buy that one pearl. Why? Because it was infinitely worth more than anything else he had. You see, in both of those parables, Jesus is pointing to the kingdom of heaven as being that great treasure and being that pearl of great price. And I want you to know that the gospel, the center of whom is none other than Jesus himself, that is someone and something worth losing everything else for. Why? Because in Jesus, you gain everything. David Wenham notes this. He says, Jesus makes it brilliantly clear that joining the kingdom, though demanding, is not something negative, but immensely positive. Yes, there is a cost to be reckoned with. After all, Jesus does say that there will be persecutions that will come along with following him. But it is nothing when seen in the context of obtaining the treasure that he offers us. And then to put an exclamation point on things, Jesus closes with this proverb. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And based upon the context... I believe that what Jesus is saying is that those who many judge to be in first place in this life, those who, who, who value that how you've achieved and how you've climbed the ladder and uh, obtained and amassed all these wealth and, and, and wealth and, and riches, well, in God's kingdom, those will be the ones who will receive nothing because they've placed all of their faith and all of their trust in the things that they've amassed in this life and they've not been rich toward God. On the other hand, the last in this life, those who by earthly standards and measurements have nothing because they gave it all up for Christ, well, in God's kingdom, they will be first. They will receive everything. A great reversal will occur. The first will be last and the last first. All of that then leads me to state for you my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. 
The gift of salvation, a blessing of infinite value that is worth every sacrifice, comes through faith in the finished work of Christ and is proof of God's blessing upon your life, not material wealth and prosperity. You see, what that means for you and for me is that we must be careful not to place value in the wrong things. Rather, what we must do is understand that our faith must be placed in the only one who can save us. And we should joyfully, joyfully release our hold on anything else in this life that would detract us from obtaining the treasure that is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. I'm drawn quite regularly back to the quote of Jim Elliott, a missionary who was killed in 1956 while attempting to evangelize the Horini people of Ecuador. On October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote these words in his journal. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, that is the lesson that the rich young ruler did not learn, but it is the lesson that Jesus Christ would have us learn. And my prayer is that these words from the very lips of our Lord would penetrate our hearts and change us into whom he would desire for us to be because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.